Hello, dear listeners. Before we get to the episode, a little housekeeping. We're changing the way we roll out our podcasts. As you know, we typically split our episodes into two parts. The first part is available for everyone. The second part is for paying subscribers only. Going forward, we will be posting both parts together in the subscriber RSS feed. So if you're already a paying subscriber, you get everything in the subscriber feed you're already using. You can get rid of the free feed. If you're not a paying subscriber, nothing will change for you. But if you would like access to the bonus material, head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and join us. We appreciate all of your support. On to the show. Welcome to Wisdom of Crowds. I'm your co-host, Shadi Hamid. We have a very special episode for all of you. We haven't really done something quite like this before, and it was kind of an epic conversation, as I think you'll see. Our guest is the great Christine Emba, returning to the pod for a second time. She's a columnist at the Washington Post and the author of a new book called Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. It's fascinating, funny, and beautifully written, and I think it's also important. It's one of those rare books that may actually change the way you think, feel, and maybe even live. We're including a link in the show notes, so do check it out. We discuss a lot of big topics. The perils of modern dating, the sex recession, consent, incels, marriage, and porn. Sex is sex, but sex is also about the kinds of societies we want to live in. So we delve into philosophical territory as well. We debate the nature of freedom, the dangers of having too much choice, and whether religions were onto something in regulating sex. We talk about whether liberalism has made us unhappy by giving us too much of what we want or perhaps too little of it. As we usually do, we split the episode into two parts, each about an hour long. Part one is available for everyone. Part two is for subscribers. And I'll just note that part two does get a little bit spicy. You can subscribe by going to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. You'll get access to all our paid content, including weekly bonus episodes, Q&A features with me and Demir, as well as our full essay archive. So please do consider joining us. Without further ado, our conversation with Christine Emba. Enjoy. Uh, we call this episode, I think, Sexy Time with Christine Emba, right? Wow, perfect. That's just just what I need. (laughs) Um, I think that's actually probably an appropriate title because for all the the listeners out there, I am staring at this pillar candle in a vase that's on on Demir's uh, coffee table. Yeah. It's incredibly romantic. There's a bottle of red wine next to it. Yeah. And... Yeah. I, I feel some kind of way about it. I'm not sure what. Welcome, Christine. Welcome <laughs> welcome to my living room studio. We Thank try and you. keep our guests nice and comfortable. Wow. You want to hear another like fun anecdote that relates to the title of the book? Um, uh, on my way here, <laughs> there's a song that just got like etched in my mind and I kept on sort of like humming it to myself. Uh, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Oh, great song. Yeah, because your book just made me think about that song. I think it's by this dude called Hadaway. Hadaway, Don, yeah. He Hadaway. was like a one-hit wonder in like the 80s or 90s. In it's the 90s. such a catchy song. Yeah, you still hear that at the club. <laughs> the club. Some, some when's clubs. The, when's the last time you were at the club, Shadi? 
Uh, I haven't done that in a long time. It's not really my vibe. I'm more of a conversational person. I like to learn about people's lives, mm-hmm. talk mm-hmm. to them, be exposed to different experiences. Wow. Like clubbing. That's a different experience. <laughs> anyway, welcome, Christine. You got a new book. It's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I, I am excited about it. I mean, it's not, you know, uh, for our listeners, Shadi hosted a a rompin' book party for Christine last week that, that got into the medias. We're celebrities now, <laughs> riding on Christine's coattails, I think, basically. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've seen, uh, honestly, I, I just, I'm still overwhelmed with foreign policy stuff, but I saw you got a, a nice review in the New York Times. Um, where else have, Where else has the book been appearing lately? Yeah, I Michelle Goldberg from the Times wrote like a whole column about it, which I didn't yeah. know was going to happen, yeah. actually. Um, it's been written about in The Week, City Journal. Um, I've done a bunch of podcasts about it. Um, perhaps something may be coming out in The Atlantic. Um, also, I had a big essay in The Washington Post that was actually kind of an excerpt and adaptation from the book called um, Consent is Not Enough. We Need a New Sexual Ethic. Um, yeah, we'll link to that so people can get a taste before they commit and buy the book. No, you should just buy the book. The book is better. <laughs> Commitment is not necessary to buy the book. Consent. Okay, but maybe uh, this is a good place okay. to start. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about, because I actually don't know the story. I mean, I, I've I've read the book. We've talked about it before. But I don't really know how you came to write this book. Like, what is the origin story? Did you have like a eureka moment where you woke up one day and it was like, this is what I want to devote the next one to two years of my life talking about and writing about? Was there something that triggered you to think that this was an urgent thing to discuss and you had obviously something distinctive to say about it? I'm trying to think of what kind of dream I would have been having that would have forced me to wake up in the morning and say, ah, yes, I want to spend the next three years of my life just writing about sexual problems. Um, (laughs) But no, (laughs) I mean, my full-time real job is as an opinion columnist for the Washington Post, um, not just, you know, lurking friend of the pod. Um, But my beat is ideas in societies and ideas in society. And I've always been interested in just sort of cultural and ethical questions and gender, race, these sort of things that make up who we are and how we think about where we fit into the world. Um, But in 2017, 2018, you know, looking for topics as one does, I wrote a lot about the Me Too movement. Um, You know, Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer. um, And those cases were interesting to me because they showed that you know, many of the problems that we might have thought were solved by the sexual revolution, by the feminist movement, um, hadn't gone away. (laughs) These questions of power dynamics, these questions of men abusing women. Um, And the Me Too moment was good because it gave us space to talk about them and gave us some answers and intimations as to what the right thing might be. Like, no, Harvey Weinstein, don't lock your underlings in a hotel room and assault them. That should have been obvious, but apparently it wasn't. Um, but at the same time, there were, you know, these other Me Too stories, like Aziz Ansari at Babe.net, Cat Person, um, that story at The New Yorker, which 
I think is still the New Yorker's most read piece of short fiction ever. Believe it or not, I have not read it to this what? very day. I mean, I hear it. I've heard about it so much for some reason. I In that moment, I just never actually read it. And now I think it's too late, probably. It is not too late. Have you read it, Demir? Of course not. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, I read about it in your book. That's that's not the same. <laughs> that's how I generally treat fiction, is is I read about it in nonfiction books. Wait, sidebar, <laughs> do you read fiction? I mean, there's a little bit here on this bookshelf, but... That's unconvincing. Yeah, not much, though. Okay. Um, well, Cat Person is like this short story. It's written in the very close third person. It's about a college student who goes on a date with this older guy and it just sucks. She doesn't really like him, but she has sex with him anyways because she sort of feels like she's supposed to. There's this moment where she's like almost looking at herself from outside of her body and trying to imagine like how to sexualize the encounter. Um she leaves. Afterwards the guy texts her and calls her a slut basically. Whoa. Whoa. And like this is the story. <laughs> it's not Come on, pleasant. Shadi. Come on. I did not know that's what it was about. I think it's she describes it in her book, doesn't she? <laughs> I don't anyway. know if I go into total detail because you can go well, read the story. Without going into too much detail about the actual cat person story, I mean, why why did he like like I, it seems like a weird thing for him to text afterwards. Yeah, it is. Um, or it should be. But what was fascinating about cat person and the Aziz Ansari story, these were stories of sex that was ostensibly consensual, right? You know, both people had agreed to it, and yet it was bad. It was depressing. It was almost traumatic for some women. And then the crazy thing was how many people, women especially, just related to this. Like, Cat Person became one of the most read, most shared stories because so many women were like, oh, yeah, yeah, this has happened to me. I've never seen someone write about it so clearly. Like, oh, this... This is like a fairly normal encounter. I've definitely had that experience. Um, and that seemed crazy to me. Like, this is a terrible experience of sex that is apparently incredibly common, even after the sexual revolution, after the feminist movement. So what is going on here? Is our sexual culture just bad? And looking around, talking to friends, reading these stories... Even at the depths of the Me Too movement, we also had like, you know, the shitty media men list, like all of these other stories of sex that was questionable, but not criminal, but still very bad and very normal. Um, I felt like asking the question, just like, what is going on? What is the problem with our sexual culture? Um, going forward from there, I guess, then the question was, okay, first, the baseline, we we have consent. We seem to have like agreed on consent as a standard for our sexual encounters. But clearly consent is not preventing these objectively horrifying sort of sexual encounters from happening. So is it not enough? What else do we need? And then, you know, what are these like, what are other assumptions maybe that we've made about sex, about relationships, about each other that are skewing the sexual culture, skewing our experiences, making it so that, you know, we haven't gotten as far as we thought we might have, that our experiences were still bad. And this felt pressing because, I mean, I'm I'm a woman living in the world, you know, dating, trying to meet people, having friends who are dating, trying to meet people who tell me about these sometimes terrifying encounters. And I just wanted to help in some way to try and figure out what was going on and how to make it better. So so your your book is let's be clear about sex. However, when I was reading it, 
I thought to myself that it's about something much deeper. And in some ways it's, it's also a philosophical meditation. And you maybe have to read between the lines to kind of get the full effect of that. She's a Straussian. A Straussian, yes. <laughs> but it seems to me that this is fundamentally a book about freedom and choice. And please push back if you don't think this is the right characterization. But sometimes it seems to me that you're you're using the debate around sex to get at these bigger questions which really animate you, which is the paradox of having too much freedom. And you're questioning whether having more freedom actually makes us happier. So you have, I mean, one of your chapters is titled we're liberated and we're miserable, which I think sums up how this promise of freedom that we thought this would make our lives better, but in fact, it's made us sadder and not just sadder, it, it's contributed to a profound sense that something is not quite right. And sex is an important part of people's lives. So sex is part of it, but extend the metaphor or the analogy and talk about the kind of the marketization and commodification of our lives in any number of ways that we're just bombarded with all of these options. And it seems to me that you're saying that maybe we have to make a much more conscious effort to say maybe freedom isn't really the goal and we have to reorient ourselves away from this singular focus on free personal freedom and unlimited choice. And we can talk maybe a little bit later about dating apps and all that, but dating apps capture the sense that we could be with anyone in DC or throughout the country. The and world. The, the world. world. Tinder even. has this yeah, yeah, you international. The, you, can tel- uh, you can teleport to wherever you want. Yes. Exactly. Belarus. Ex- <laughs> Belarus. Belarus be. specifically is. I don't know. I didn't want to say, okay. I didn't want to say Ukraine. That would have been tasteless. So, so, are, are you, so he said are, it anyway. <laughs> I said Belarus. <laughs> but are you in a sense, like, is this like a broader critique of li- liberalism or the liberal idea? Um, how far would you go? Am I going too far in kind of attributing these things to to your argument? I don't think so, actually. You know, like when I was writing the book, when I was thinking about it, I first started thinking about it as almost an academic question, like, ah, the sexual culture, where did we think the sexual revolution would take us and where have we gone? And like, what's the delta there? What's the problem? Um, but as I was researching and like talking to people, it became much more of a a sort of personal project and picked at a lot of questions like through sort of the lens of sex that were much larger than than just sex itself. And you know, one of the like one of the first things I say in the book is that, you know, you're not crazy for thinking that something in our sexual culture is off. But also I think that extends to the the feeling of disconnection, the feeling of alienation that people are feeling in modern society, you know, more commonly, it's not crazy to think that something is is amiss. What we need to do is talk about it and figure out what that is. Um, and so in the book, you know, when I talk about, you know, asking questions about what false assumptions have we made about sex and sexuality that have brought us to the weird cultural malaise place that we're in today, one of them, a major one, is the assumption of freedom, of perfect freedom, of the idea that, you know, freedom will make everything better. In some ways, this was kind of a false 
a false promise of many of these revolutions that really, to make the world better, what we need is for everyone to just get more free. If everyone had more options, more choice, could do really whatever they want because we were repressed in the past or held back in the past or something, then we would be better. Things would be happier. And yet that just doesn't seem to have solved the problem. Um, And that goes for sex, but that also goes for so many other parts of our life. And I think sex is, you know, where I started, the starting point and sort of the focus of this book. But in some ways it could be a metaphor for a lot of, you know, other things that are very important to us that we're looking at in the wrong way. Before we like go down the the freedom rabbit hole, because I think there's a lot there. uh, And I do think you're your book is Straussian, but... Um, <laughs> but okay, well, <laughs> do, go on Do you first. want to explain to our dear listeners oh, who Mr. Strauss is? No, no, it. because you, you frequently <laughs> accuse people of being Straussians, and I want you to define what you mean when no, you say no, that. No, no, it's, it's a folk definition. It just means that you're... you're well, okay, here, I'll, I'll lay out my case for you being Straussian. Mm. I, I think, um, you know, uh, my, my uh, intuition is is that uh, the logic of writing a book like this uh, necessitates a certain approach to it, which, you know, you want it to be read. So you start from the individual and from sort of a a kind of sex positivity and then smuggle in a a bunch of uh, subversive uh, conservative ideas into it Mm, to to actually pollute the minds of of right-thinking, like, normies. And that's actually— Wouldn't that be left-thinking normies? Uh, I meant I meant right like normies, no, just I, like I know. you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yes, left thinking normies, exactly. Um, so I mean, I think that's what's going on. I think the book is great for that very reason. But um, you know, I, I guess the before we get into that part, do you do we know um, whether dating has gotten dating and sex, the whole like thing has gotten worse? Or, again, like reported through surveys or happiness studies or whatever. Um, Or it's always kind of sucked like this. And uh, just our expectations because the sexual revolution were towards a better world that just has never realized. Do you have a sense of, of that from your research or, you know, just like reading things? So I think it's both, actually. Um, Yeah. Finding connection, finding love or something like it you know, creating a good relationship has always been hard and has always been difficult in different ways in different times. Like that's, we can just set that as a baseline. That's kind of the human condition. Um, But there is data, you know, that today people are finding sex and relationships particularly difficult. So like according to Pew, um, nearly half of American adults and a majority of women say that dating has gotten harder for most people over the past 10 years. Um, fully half of single adults have just given up on finding a romantic relationship at all. And then the sex recession, so-called, was something that we were already talking about before COVID-19. But in 2021, we reached a 30-year low in sexual activity, in people forming romantic partnerships, which doesn't even mean getting married, but also people getting married, um, and leading the charge or I guess like heading up the rear guard here is young people um, like millennials and Gen Zs. So it does seem that there is a specific malaise that is hitting at this moment. Um, And I think, but I think you're also right though, that there is just a question, and this is something I was very interested in writing the book of 
what we expected would happen um, from various movements and revolutions and what did happen. Like there is a delta between what we thought we were going for or what, you know, these utopian thinkers and activists thought they were going to get and what we've gotten. So I'm interested in kind of how these movements might have been perverted or sort of pushed off of the path that they were aiming for. And we've ended up like in this place where cat person is normal and men send college students text calling them sluts after they sleep with them. And that's just like a thing that happens. Can I add a very depressing polling result, which is also from your book that really stood out to me in a 2019 Pew survey, men were twice as likely as women to say that they weren't dating because they thought that no one would be interested in them. How depressing is that? There's like a bunch of guys out there who literally think they're worthless and no woman would ever want to date them. That's surprising to me. Yeah, that's, I mean, the incel movement has gotten a lot of press recently and it's not because it's minor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But also say like, there's also like anecdata. I know from my own life, if I compare dating before the apps to dating after the apps, I'm pretty sure I was happier. And the reason I didn't have apps in the, in the previous era is because I had a Blackberry. I had a Blackberry until 2014. Wow. That's not. So from like, yeah. So like, (laughs) When when did Tinder hit the scene? What year? 20. 12. Wow, that yeah, but not only on iPhones or actual yeah, like proper smartphones. So for those no of us who are um, user, my God. He's yeah. so professional. Yeah. Haven't you look at this guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's something really nice about you you would limit your dating pool to just the people who lived in your city that you would meet naturally through your friends, through social activities, parties, whatever. That means that you don't have to always be striving and wondering what else is out there. Because you'll meet what is out there through your just everyday life. Well, so here's the thing. Uh, I, I, you know, inept and like not social enough to do this, but I was part of like a group of friends in the pre-dating app era who really did go to bars and pick up women. And so that was amusing, amazing to watch really as a, as a social phenomenon. And it, and it, and it took like a level of... I don't know, level of social savvy, but also, I don't know, the kind of bars that people would go to for that. And the thing that always struck me about it, I mean, yeah, sure, but I'm not sure that the norm was necessarily what you're saying, Shadi, that was all through friends. Before apps, people went to bars, uh, you know, either, you know, to or clubs, as we were saying earlier, you know, you'd go there in order to hook up. And that to me is, you know, maybe something I'd, I'd press you on, Christine, a little bit about, you know, the the that happiness delta and fair enough, you know, sex recessions, all the rest of that. Uh, and I, I do attribute a lot of that to technology, I think, um, not necessarily to, you know, other things, but you know, the bar scene, the dating bar scene, the hookup scene before apps, pretty analogous in its brutality, I think to what is now, maybe what's changed with dating apps is that like, being in the bar hookup scene is now accessible to everyone and now everyone's partaking in it. Whereas there was like a, a, a higher level, you needed, you know, a level of, I don't know what, drive to basically go do that in the bar scene. But you know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's, it seems to me in my recollections, every bit as uh, harsh, uh, fraught, um, cold, 
inhuman as anything we're seeing right now. So if anything, you know, I mean, clearly apps have made a difference, but I wonder, you know, if, if to a certain extent, again, just to push on this a little bit is, is hasn't dating to a certain extent always been miserable. Shoddy's like, you know, friendship circle meeting people aside, you know, cause people have always done that as well. And of course you'd always have that alternative, even if you were hitting the bars and clubs, but you know what I mean? Like, hasn't always kind of been horrible. Again, just to sort of drive that a little bit Totally little bit disagree, more. but Christine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's a dark a dark vision. Um, again, I think I would say that dating has always been hard. Dating has always had its difficulties. But I do think that there is a uniqueness to some of the trends that we're seeing today that's worth talking about. Um, I mean, there's this chart that I talk about in the book by you know, Michael, I think it's by the researcher, Michael J. Rosenfeld from Stanford. Um, And it shows that in between 2000 and 2010, there was just this huge shift. So the way that most people used to meet a relationship partner was through friends and like going to a bar um, or restaurant was, I think like the second most common way, but it was almost tied with meeting through coworkers. But by far in a way, you know, at its peak, like 40% of people met a partner through friends or networks. And then in 2000, like between 2000 and 2010, friends just take a nosedive on this graph. Like it's really remarkable to look at. And at the same time, online dating just shoots basically vertical. Um, And they, I think by now that the graph cuts off at 2010, um, but by now I think they've basically changed places. And I do think that the world of dating apps is actually perhaps in some ways, well, it's definitely harsher than I think meeting through friends, in part because there's just no mediation. Um, and the way that these apps are set up uh, inculcates a, a certain mindset of people as commodities, like unlimited options. You can swipe through them and you also don't have any responsibility to treat them well because like, who's going to know? Um, and yes. <laughs> So I, yeah, I think that that's a difference. I, I mean, I, th- I think I think we agree. I mean, I I agree. Uh, and the data, you know, again, which I'm ignorant of, I, I wouldn't challenge any of that. It's just, you know, maybe my 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 point then, if I was to narrow it a bit, is that uh, apps have just democratized a certain style of dating, which mm-hmm. actually prioritizes sex, and that's maybe where I'd like to drive this conversation to a certain yeah. extent, because what I'm getting at in the, you know. Uh, the expectations part of what I was saying earlier is that by, again, to Shadi's point about uh, the subtext of your book about freedom and, you know, unlimited choice, um, also the other sort of uh, stated, and I'm not sure exactly how you relate to it, but, you know, uh, desired benefit of the sexual revolution was that uh, sex would become, you know, or put it this way, that sex is fundamental to a certain kind of like self-discovery and fulfillment, mm-hmm. like development of the of the human. And properly experiencing it is key to like human flourishing in a way. And I, I think that that remains as a sort of 
thesis of your book, even though I think you undermine it quite a lot. This is why I think it's a Straussian book. By the end, I think you undermine the thesis in, in a lot of ways. Wait, how does she undermine the thesis? In the last chapter. I don't want to give it away for the readers. We'll get there. We'll okay. get there. Okay. I, I'm interested in learning this too. Yeah. So. No, but I mean, uh, you, 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 you undermine it by questioning it. Fine. Let's get to it now. By, by questioning basically the, the, uh, where we put it in the hierarchy. You still, I think, uh, think is an important part of human flourishing, but you 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 try and sort of deflate its perhaps importance in the hierarchy of of, of needs, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. in some way, especially when the in the constellation of a relationship. But you know what I'm getting at again is like is is um, do you think that 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 uh, to put the question like very tightly, do you think that um, that's as much of a problem as anything. This kind of uh, like lifting sex to like a higher level of meaning that it can possibly ever uh, provide. And that mm-hmm. that's a product of the sexual revolution that has now tried to sort of extol this thing, which quite frankly, you know, uh, in previous times, even, you know, we're not, don't need to go into Victorian eras or anything like that, but was, uh, you know, known to be like, if you're just pursuing it in sort of normal dating and we're not meeting through friends, it's kind of brutal and transactional Mm -hmm. and cheapening and horrible, just like now everyone feels through apps. Um, And now somehow we thought that we were going to transcend that sort of baseness of sexual transactionalism and that it would somehow, we could find meaning in it once we rid this, but maybe that's not right. Does that make sense? It does, I think. So I will try and answer that question in two parts. And Shadi, you should feel free to jump in too, Um, (laughs) because I'm interested in what you think. Um, First of all, actually, just tacking back to the last question, why dating has always been bad, how has dating gotten worse? One thing that I should have mentioned and just neglected to to mention when we were just talking about this, um, there have been some shifts in what is expected and what dating is expected to look like that are pretty significant. Um, So talking about the inclusion of sex and dating, I think sex has always sort of been a part of it. But if you're talking to um, women, especially, you're hearing that now when you're, you know, you go on a date with somebody, it's expected that you would have sex with them pretty fast um, in a short period of time. Like that's just a general ex- expectation that like this will lead to sex. I, I disagree. I don't, I don't think that's the common expectation for a first date. Oh, not for a first date. Oh, okay. Not for a first date. Second or third. Um, Well, okay. Um, And then I think you you also hear a lot of women and frankly men talking about the effect of pornography um, and media on how they experience sex and dating. So women who, like a woman in, you know, a story I tell in this book, a woman just came up to me because I told her I was talking about, I was writing this book on sex. And she was like, yeah, so I've been going on dates with this guy, um, but he chokes me. Is that, is that okay? Like, I don't like it, but you know, we're, we're dating and like, that's kind of a normal thing that happens, happens to my friends too. Is that okay? And the fact that she had to ask me that just a random stranger at a party, whether it was okay, meaning whether she was okay for being offended and kind of disgusted by this suggests that there are now almost new expectations for like the lengths to which one should be expected to go. Um, in any variable encounter, which I think makes dating feel 
kind of darker and scarier in some ways. So here's what I think's attention in your book is, as far as I understand it, that on one hand, there is a sex recession. So at one point in the book, you say, what if we had less sex by focusing on better sex, good sex, ethical sex? But what if we're already having less sex? So in some ways, what you're calling for has already been happening, maybe not for the right reasons, but it seems that younger generations are becoming less wild, less into sex. So that's something that seems to be happening quite clearly on one hand. On the other hand, you hear stories like the choking story. Um, and I have heard more of that as well. And so are these two things happening simultaneously? So people are having less sex, but the people who are still having sex are having it in a sort of like weirder, more porn influenced way. I mean, that's one hypothesis. And I should also, just to add some context for listeners, I think what's really striking about this, the choking story in your book is that she likes this guy a lot. She's even considering him as a long-term mate. I don't know if that's the word that we use. <laughs> you pronounce that really weirdly. <laughs> long-term mate. Long mate. mate. So she's like, she feels really lucky to have met this guy. She's really into him. And she feels that she can't really raise this with him and say, hey, listen, dude, I like you, but I'm not into the choking thing. And that actually maybe says, says something about your desires and fantasies that I'm not comfortable with. She doesn't feel that she can say that to him because she doesn't want to lose him. So she almost feels like there's a kind of implicit bargain. You have an amazing guy, but life is about trade-offs. So you can't have it all. So perfect guy, but he chokes me. And I got to like take that. That's sort of the sense that I get from her own kind of self-justification yeah. of it. Yeah. So, I mean, that, like, I think that in some ways that particular kind of trade-off seems a bit novel to this moment of dating. Demir is frowning. I can see that. But I guess in, <laughs> so it's also a, a contrast between, again, expectations of what we thought we would get and where we thought we'd be at and where we are. Yeah. Um, it, I think we were in a place where we hoped that that wasn't the transaction that was happening, and yet it still is. And then, you know, this question of she doesn't feel like she has any recourse, like any real way to say that, like, anything to point to, to be able to be like, I'm not into this because X is wrong. So there's much less space to, you know, criticize what might be happening in the dating environment. Um so I think that that is also an an interesting shift. Like there are almost no norms to point to, to sort of structure and schedule interactions. So things feel a little bit crazy and out of control for people um, in a certain sense. Uh, you know, and on, on the sex recession thing, so how do you see that? So yeah. are people just already kind of deciding what you want mm -hmm. them to decide because they're voting with their, uh, I don't know what the correct analogy would we'll be. We'll just or, go with feet. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, actually, yeah, well, let's just stick with feet. <laughs> Joking, voting yeah, so with their genitals. Are they already it. sympathetic to your argument and that's the reason they're having a lot less sex? I mean, what's going on here with the sex recession? Yeah, so there are a lot of theories for this and it's not totally clear, frankly. Um, and so I don't, and that's why I don't actually think that this is just an answer to my question that like people have already stopped having sex and that's great. Um, one of the key arguments that I make in this book um, is that part of the disappointment with where our sexual culture is going is that 
most people, a majority of people, when they're dating, when they're looking for a partner, like sex is, sex is great, but have you ever, you know, experienced being fully loved and cared for by another person? <laughs> um, many people are, in fact, looking for love, looking for a relationship, looking for, you know, community and empathy with someone else. And so I think another another thing that's perhaps different about our sexual culture and the dating culture right now too is almost this tyranny of what I call the tyranny of chill. The mm. expectation that, you know, you're dating, but like, it's not cool to say that you're looking for something serious or that you're looking for a relationship. Actually, like the best way to to date is to be looking for the zipless fuck, no strings attached. If you say that you want something more, you're a weirdo. So people- Sorry, parents. <laughs> Sorry, parents. Um, so I think people feel a little bit stunted in their ability to find what they really want by what the culture is telling them, by the messaging they're getting, what, you know, what the story is now, even though that's opposed to perhaps their real feelings. And so to the sex recession, sorry, I'm circling back to that one. I think that, you know, when I talk about what a good sexual culture would look like um, and what our goals really are, I think that the goal that we should be searching for is actually what we really want, which is sex that is good for us, that treats us as full human beings, that actually enables the connection with other people that we really want. And so I propose, you know, a different ethic of sex other than consent, willing the good of the other, that's supposed to move us towards, you know, having sex that is more empathetic, more caring, more the type of sex that leads to these relationships and these experiences that we're really looking for together with each other. The sex recession, on the other hand, I think has a lot of causes, but one theory um, talked about by a number of researchers also is that people just don't think that they can get that anymore. And so they're just kind of giving up or opting out of the whole thing altogether because what they are receiving is almost too painful for them. Um, you know, there's a theory also that especially teenagers, you know, are having these sexual encounters where, you know, they go into something and then they experience not just rough sex, but really rough and alarming experiences like strangulation, for instance. And that is scary to them. And they'd rather just be like, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. But isn't it also like the emotional hurt that, you know, with the younger, younger generations, they're coddled a little bit. They're, they're not used to dealing with adversity as much. So sex and just dating and relationships requires being vulnerable. It requires emotional pain. You mm -hmm. will get your heart broken. You will get sad. And that can have a big effect on you. And, I, and my sense is that with the youngsters, <laughs> based on my interactions with some of these young folks- With is the that, youth. With the youth is that they, they don't always have- like too much pain is not something they're necessarily act. And I'm here, I mean, emotional hurt, really. Mm -hmm. um, getting your heart broken is like a really difficult thing. And I don't know if like listeners remember when they first got their heart broken in a pretty serious way. And I don't know if you remember, wow. but it's like one of the worst feelings in the world that you can possibly have. So maybe it's easier for people to just like not even put themselves out there. I mean, it is part of it that people are just not emotionally ready for that level of potential hurt and vulnerability right now. 
<sighs> Moment of silence as we each quietly think about the first time our heart was broken. <laughs> okay, Shadi's laughing. Moment of silence <laughs> over. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that's part of it. I think that there is, you know, a fear also of vulnerability. But for many of the people I talk to, many of the young people, um, it's A, that they've tried kind of the hookup culture. They see that happening and it's not working for anyone and they don't want any part of it. So why even begin? Um, and that actually is kind of a powerful feeling. There's also, you know, this understanding of what the best, what our highest goals should be. And this is something that I talk about in the book. I think that our culture has developed a kind of a, a liberal autonomy goal, a norm that the best way to live your life is to maximize maximize your personal freedom. You need to be free of ties and ready to chase your career and chase your dreams, but career is a big part of it. And perhaps a relationship would hold you back. Uh, getting your heart broken will slow you down. So maybe that's something to just set aside, you know, for now and do something that is better for you as a person, which is sometimes perhaps appealing up to a point. But eventually, I think many people get to a point where they're like, oh, yeah, actually, connection would be nice to care about someone and be cared for in return. And I actually think that especially in the COVID-19 pandemic, as people have had time to sort of get off the apps work from home, sit down and think about their lives, sometimes while they're isolating alone in their home or apartment, there has been a realization among a lot of people that, oh yeah, it would it would be nice to have real human connection in my life. I cannot relate to these people who during the pandemic didn't have human connection. So I have nothing to say on this. Like it's, <laughs> it's super odd to me that there were people who actually did not socialize or have friends or see their friends or go out for God knows how long. And I... I feel bad for those folks. And, you know, now that we know that the pandemic isn't real, I think in retrospect, <laughs> okay, I'm messing around there. But Demir- Shadi has <laughs> never believed in COVID. <laughs> no, no. I mean, before before you even got here, Christine, we were we were questioning the reality of COVID mm. and how, how- It's just amazing how memory hold it was. Like it's like people just like almost overnight, people just stopped thinking, writing, talking about COVID. No one can be bothered. Anyway, that's but, like a little bit of a tangent, yeah. but Demir. <laughs> yeah, no, um- so again, Christine, though, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, in a previous answer to Shadi, you said sex that is good for us was like a phrase that you used. Mm-hmm. So again, trying to redeem sex. But then like in your second answer, I feel like, again, this is what I took out of the book is, is to what people want is relationships. Obviously, sex is part of a healthy relationship and that's fine. But that's what I meant by, you know, I think the, the, the move you make towards the end of the book is to like try and even though sometimes you seem to like elide the two in a way that like when you use sex, it's also because there's an expectation of it somehow being tied to relationships and actually even standing in for relationships. Again, I think the subversive move, if you will, in the book is to, to make that move. But I, I, it's interesting that you even now insist on saying like sex that is good for us rather than, than saying, you know, maybe we should really think about what is, what is a relationship? What is, human decency, what is manners is the other thing. I think we talked about this last time you were on that the was podcast. My first, my first pod visit. Right. Yes. To this day, people say is their favorite wisdom of crowds episode and of I've, all time. And, and if yeah. you guys missed it, we are going to include a link. Yes, we will. And you have to go back <laughs> and listen to it. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful set. It, 
It's a but beautiful episode. I just make fun of Shadi, and and that's why. It's kind to of be a, clear. a bit of that. Yeah. A bit. But so 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 I mean, you know, is it is it again? Uh, where do you come out? I mean, to, to push you on that again, like yeah, where do you come down on that? In the sense that again, to sharpen the question once more, I feel like the book is structured in a way to appeal to a f- sex positive pe- people readership <laughs> who only understand the concept in those terms. Um, and I think by the end of it, you make a pretty successful pivot to something else. And yet still I catch you talking about sex that is good for us, even in this podcast. So where do you come down on it? Yeah. Sorry. You did ask that question earlier and no, I no, got no, it's fine. distracted by another question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's a really good one. So as I said, I guess at the very beginning of this podcast, the question that sort of just started this journey to talking about sex was the Me Too movement um, and the stories that women were telling me about their sort of Me Too adjacent experiences almost. And, you know, I think I framed the book in that way because that that was just kind of the starting point. Um, and when I, I think when I say it became a more personal project, I first implicated myself um, as I explored sort of the false assumptions and the weird things that were going on in the culture. But also, yes, I think that the way that we think about sex, you know, is kind of a stand-in for the way that we think about a lot of other elements of society, elements of, you know, our personalities. Um, You know, sex is, I quote Roger Scruton in this book, um, which Michelle Goldberg from the Times had like a real bout of confusion about. Yeah, Yeah, he's an arc arch conservative he passed away i mean a, a little while ago but he's like pretty intense again this is the tell of straussianism <laughs> here smuggling in subversive ideas go on is it really subversive no, no actually michelle goldberg was like christine emba is a heterodox yeah. thinker like yeah. she quotes andrea dworkin but also roger scruton i don't really know what's going on here yeah um but he points out that you know sex is kind of the bond of society you know, it's what creates society and also what can explode it. And I think sex is thought of as this like one specific action that people do, but it has a lot of other ramifications. It is in some ways currently, although I don't think it actually should be, a stand-in for how we talk about relationships. Um, it is a thing that it's a locus for how we relate to each other and what that looks like. You know, when I ask a question about like, what is, what does sex mean? What is sex for? I'm also, I think, asking the question, what are human beings for? How should we relate to each other? And what should that look like? And I think I talk about, you know, okay, what would a good sexual culture or a good sexual ethic look like? Because the conversation in the book starts with talking about how consent has failed as a sexual standard. Um, how it has in some ways warped our sexual culture and we need a better standard that we all live up to and a better sexual culture. But I think implicated in that is our entire culture. Um, And I do think to your point about, you know, (laughs) smuggling in larger questions. um, And also, I guess, to your previous question about, um, I guess, weighting sex too, too highly and also in a too low a stance. That's one of the key critiques that I make in the book of like something, a sort of assumption or belief that we 
are culturally getting wrong. We have this this paradox, right, where sex ostensibly is just like this physical thing that you do with each other. You're like high-fiving or it's like skiing, but kind of dangerous. Just get consent. <laughs> skiing is also dangerous. Yes. Skiing is extremely dangerous, More actually. people die of skiing. Well, it depends how you define dying sex. of sex. <laughs> I got a concussion the last time I went skiing. Oh, skiing. Um, okay. Oh, I thought that was going somewhere else, but okay. <laughs> uh, thank you. <laughs> Um, but no, like, you know, hit the slopes, just make sure you like wear a condom and also get consent. Those are the only rules you have to live by. But at the same time, on the other hand, we have this thing where like sex means everything, you know, like your sexual identity is one of the main ways you identify yourself where you like locate your own self and meaning and having great sex is emblematic of, being a, like a self-actualized person, a modern man or woman who lives in the world. And in the book, I blame a couple of people for this misconception. Freud being one of them, mm. Hugh Hefner being another. Mm. Um, Freud's the worst. He, he is, the worst. is the pits. Yeah. I mean, he's so influential and yet so wrong constantly. And yet all so influential, so discredited, yet still, still so influential <laughs> and yet wrong. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. This is something I talk about in the book. Like, Freudian language has infiltrated everything we say, and yet it's all crack pottery. But so, so you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, sexual identity as the er identity is a fascinating phenomenon that people just, you know, that's how like the primary identification, and more and more so, it feels like that. Mm-hmm. As as a, an, a, an aging person, I find really particularly <laughs> alienating at this point. Do you identify as an aging, aging person? person. More yes. than by your sexuality. Yes, definitely. Wow. It's my primary my primary identification wow. as an aging person at this point. Um, it's for the next show. But the the <laughs> uh, you know it's it's but it's again you just you 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 hit on something else and the earlier discussion you and Shadi were having about the uh, the choking episode right on the one hand there's a there's something to porn and how it like gives cues particularly to guys, but also to women, what they should tolerate, but also guys, what they should be turned on by. Mm-hmm. I don't think like choking was all that widespread as a turn on until it became like widespread as something that, you know, people are watching on the internet and then they're like, well, this is just, so it becomes like this weird sort of play acting. But the the more striking thing is, again, um, that, that question of, uh, yeah, like liberalism and the individual and the sort of you can't question that in a lot of ways, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it's 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 uh, you you mentioned Dan Savage, the the sex columnist, at some point in the book as well. And I remember that was that was always his thing because you guys were talking about you know relationships. You said I made a face when like you know relationships are about making compromises. And I remember Dan Savage used to write about this sort of stuff and say things like, "Well, in fact." Uh, you know, when you're with someone, you have to tolerate their kinks. That's part of a relationship. Mm -hmm. That was like a big thing that he always would sort of come back to. And I didn't realize that he'd sort of transitioned away from that in his sort of later writing. I just remember reading Dan Savage back in the day. And that was his big sort of advice Mm -hmm. was, you know, if, if, uh, your partner wants to wear diapers and, and, and you need to change them. Well, you know, if you love them, that's the, Cost of, uh, you know, a, a healthy relationship because we're all weird, you know? Um, so, I don't know. Yeah, it is this kind of, like, weird embedded 
ethic of toleration. Okay, mm-hmm. but like on the other hand, just to piggyback on that, there's also like a very different ethic that I think has been the prevailing one since the dawn of time, which is that, and that's why we have religion in part to regulate things, including sex. So, I mean, what we're talking about, this kind of ethic of tolerance of permissibility is relatively recent. And it seems to me that um, religions, especially the monotheistic religions, my favorite ones, (laughs) (laughs) um, that they were, they for a long time are speaking, we're speaking to precisely what Christine is speaking to. They found a way to regulate sex, obviously. And some of those results were not ideal. And some of them Why were not? quite patriarchal. Again. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, but, but at least if we're talking about the basic impulse that sex is something that has to be managed because of its communal effects, that's an insight that the three monotheistic religions came to a long, long time ago, which makes me wonder, are you trying to, to get back to Demir's inquiry, are you trying to, in a kind of roundabout, backhanded way, smuggle in religion, but without making it precisely about religion? Hmm. Are you telling us to do what religion has told us to do in times past? Okay. Um, wow, that was, that was a ton of questions at once. Um, let me That's see. That's what if we're I can, known for here. Let me oh, see just, if I can backtrack and take take whichever chill, one yeah, you yeah, want. We're, yeah. we're having fun at this point, point. Yeah. and I hope you, dear readers, are too. Readers, <laughs> dear, yeah. oh, sorry, listeners, <laughs> dear readers of my book, "Rethinking Sex: A yeah. Provocation." Um, okay, uh, a couple things. So, just to finish what I was saying to Demir, and actually. I will also recommend one review of the book that came out just today as we were recording. It's in City Journal. It's by Tara Isabella Burton. Mm. And maybe we can link to it. But she like she just really gets what I was trying to do in the book. I think in some ways almost better than I did myself as I was writing it. Um, but she points out one thing that I think is really true about this approach and what I was talking about with you, Demir, um, that our the sort of broken sexual culture, our broken approach to sex is just kind of emblematic of a broken approach to interpersonal relationships that is sort of culture-wide. Um, and yes, it's one that's made worse by a culture of liberal individualism. So there's that. Um, second, I guess the smuggling of... <laughs> <laughs> Am I trying to convert all of my readers to Catholicism? No, <laughs> I am. I am not. <laughs> Unlike Shadi, who's trying to convert everyone to Islam. Yeah, but we all know that Shadi is going to become a Christian. Um, uh, that's just a running joke, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry to Shadi's parents. We could cut that. Oh, well, that's good. Uh, um, anyway, <laughs> so I I think that they're. Is and I so I also wrote a column about um, radical monogamy hmm. last week, um, and I make the point in that column that obviously, sort of younger generations always feel like they want to or that they are recreating the world anew, and that every realization they have is new and special. So it's not the old monogamy; it's radical monogamy. Um, but embedded in that 
stance is always this sort of weird disconnect with the past. There's this feeling that people in the past were just kind of paper thin and they did things because they were being pushed along by tradition or by religion or by some other stricture and they're kind of flat caricatures and they didn't have any real thoughts. Like they weren't complex. They were just people pulled along by whatever they were told to do. Um, But actually people were complex in the past (laughs) and they made choices, right or wrong, based on information that they had and what worked best for them. And some of the things that have, you know, persisted over time maybe did so because multiple people made choices based on what was best for them. And this was one that seemed best to a lot of people. Um, So I think that, you know, in, in the current moment, it's often very common to be like, well, the past was terrible. Everybody was repressed and dumb and didn't know anything about sex. The past was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Said Roger Scruton. (laughs) And it's, very true. I, I also want to say that this isn't like a reactionary text, actually. I don't think it's Straussian in that way. I, I want to be clear that I think the sexual revolution was good and the feminist movement was great and meaningful. Um, and a lot of good things have happened. Women's equality, I'm for it. You know, f- less oppression of minority groups uh, and people of minority orientations, I'm yeah, for it. It's been pretty Let's good. Let's be clear about that. Support. Um, but we don't need to like throw the baby out with the bathwater in some ways. Like it's entirely possible that people had good ideas about sex and how it fit into communities and lives in the past. Some of which are embedded in long running religious traditions, uh, which is why I quote from, you know, like a lot of different religious traditions in this book, as I talk about why we conceive of sex as special, even spiritual, and also what, a new and better sexual ethic would look like. There is wisdom there. And if it's there, we should, you know, make use of it. But how do you do a better sexual ethic without the external constraints of religious doctrine? Because if you're telling a secular atheist person who has no concern with some of these older traditions, you're essentially telling them that through the sheer force of willpower and self-discipline that they have to completely reconstitute their understanding of sex It just seems like that's a hard thing to do if you don't have an overarching framework that allows you to do it. Here's here's just like even a a piggyback on on that. You know, I I uh, I was struck by Michelle Goldberg's column uh, because she was struck by where you come down on this as well. She said you you know uh, are unduly I forget I don't have it in front of me, but like unduly critical or, you know, even maybe condescending to some of the successes of the sexual revolution, which I think you're, from my perspective as a reader, Michelle's wrong. You're right. Thank you. Uh, but, (laughs) but it still begs the question of where you draw that line, because you just said, you know, like, uh, you want to accept all the good that's come of it. Um, but where's the, the badness come from? Doesn't the badness come from what Shadi's getting at to a certain extent? The, the sort of dissolution of a lot of this, I don't know. I, I, I'm not a traditionalist myself. So, but traditional stuff is really what we're talking about. So, you know, isn't, isn't there a sense in which you, you know, want the cake and the other shit too? I think that I want to keep cake and shit in two very separate categories. (laughs) I love cake. I don't Don't want the other. (laughs) Um, But fair enough. Like our, our, our current sexual life is shit. So you want the cake of, 
of, uh, you know, uh, liberation and liberation as entailed by a lot of liberal projects. And yet you recognize that liberalism some, somewhere here not only has forced us to uh, into weird situations like your interviewee who feels like she can't even criticize a guy who's choking her, so a level of weird sexual tolerance which is now demanded of people, but also, um, uh, you know, is 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 empowering of of uh, you know uh, this kind of inflation of of sex to a, a level of meaning which we were discussing earlier that maybe it doesn't even deserve. Ah, okay. So how do you how do you square that? Like, where's the line of you know where the project of liberation? Uh, goes too far and pollutes everything. What if we can't have the bad without the good? So all the good things you mentioned, it may require also accepting the bad. So this is another question I think that speaks to something larger than sex. Yeah. I think this is a question of just the human condition and how we exist in a society with each other. This is sort of the question of pluralism that Shadi, I know that you love. Um, this also reminded me of the question that I forgot in that barrage of questions previously um, about an ethic of total toleration that you should kind of be willing to put up with anything and everything and not criticize any anyone's choices. And I think this is um, part of where Michelle Goldberg perhaps misunderstood me or maybe misunderstood the project. So one of my one of the chapters in the book, and I'll talk about this and then tack back to this question about where does liberalism end? One of the chapters in the book is titled Some Desires Are Worse Than Others. Um, and it's basically a statement that, you know, no, not every <laughs> desire is good and should be tolerated. Um and that, I don't know, it, it sounds kind of harsh, but it's actually not. It, it's kind of an, it's an argument for judgment, judgment, not judgment in the sort of casting someone into the outer darkness forever, but in having an understanding that there is in fact a good, there are in fact ways to be moral and ethical that we should reach for, like higher standards that we can have for ourselves. And worse ways to be a person in the world and to each other. So in that chapter, like I use um, a, a kind of extreme example. I don't know if you remember the army hammer phenomenon. I'm going to guess that Demir was not on that. We've actually talked about it in se several chats and people mentioned, I have no idea what the hell people Really? About. Okay. So army hammer is this, was, he's still a celebrity. Um, and catch me if you can. Was he in there? Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's Leonardo's No, no, sorry, my bad. Okay, I think I, what I meant to say is um, I will I will call you, call me. Call me by your oh, name. Yeah, by <laughs> catch you. Catch me by my catch. Uh, call me by your catch. Um, yeah, a celebrity. And it came out, um, he's married, um, but it came out, I guess, in 2020, maybe, Women came forward, sort of a part of this Me Too phenomenon rolling on, um, saying that he had engaged him in these relationships and was really crazy and abusive, um, that he had a cannibalism fetish, and Ooh, that he... Us. <laughs> 
Uh, you know what's me. funny? I don't have that I fetish. literally was about to say that. <laughs> We've been doing this for too long, Please Shani. Please help get me out of this apartment. <laughs> you just call an Uber. It's fine. I'm going to... Okay. <laughs> well, guys, if you never hear from me again... Um, You'll know why. Yeah, but no, he had this, he had a cannibalism fetish among many other fetishes. Um, he wanted to beat his girlfriends. He like branded some of them. He, you know, talked about how turned on he would get by murdering them, hurting them, drinking their blood, etc. And several of his girlfriends came out and were like, this happened to me. And it was so traumatic and terrifying. And I don't know about you, but I think that that's, bad. Um, I think that a fetish for degrading your partners for causing them pain and terror is perhaps worse than a desire to treat your partners well and do good. What about but that in, cannibal couple in Germany that devoured yeah, each other? I think other? that's bad. What? That happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, it he, seems I think to frequently he, happen he, in he, Germany. Yeah, they, they fried his penis, I think. And then ate it again. Sorry okay, to weird. the parents. Yeah, no, it's Germany though, and I mean, and and but what? but what? see, <laughs> the interesting thing there though, Christine though, again, the the funny thing. I mean, we can get on Germany tangents, and but Germany represents that kind of ultimate toleration of yep. everything, right? And even they were like, "This is a bit." And they, too they far. yeah, they were like, "Okay, it's criminal. You killed a guy and then ate him," but he like consented. That's the other funny thing about that, right? <laughs> right. There was, there was a total like level of consent. He was like, "I want you to kill me and eat me." So and he did. <laughs> okay, so this so this actually gets to a big argument in the book that we haven't like really talked about yet. But circling back to Army Hammer's yeah. minor cannibalism, I guess um, one of like this was covered in papers and in uh, like women's journals and elsewhere. And weirdly, the criticism, like the only criticism that he seemed to come under, was not like, "Wow, it's crazy that this man loves eating and degrading women." It was like. Army Hammer, you know, it's fine if you have a cannibalism fetish, but Army Hammer did not ask these women for, for consent. consent to participate in his drinking of their blood or whatever it is he was doing. Like, that was the only criticism uh, that mass media felt okay levying. You know, well, he didn't get consent to do this objectively insane thing, and that's all we can say about that. And so when I say that I'm interested in bringing judgment back in in some ways, I think that we should have a higher standard for ourselves and for our sexual activities than, well, did you get permission or not? Like, I think we should be able to talk about whether some states of mind are like better or worse than others, whether there are some things um, that we should question because we they make society worse. They have a bad influence on the people involved. We don't even know what consent to this thing would even but be, how do we, even how? if we had that. And so I, I'm just going to keep going on the consent question because I think this is really important. One of the things that I talk about in this book, um, a major thread that runs through it is a critique of consent as the only sexual ethic possible. Because consent is a legal permission, you know, it's a floor, you know, it's, it tells us what we can do to not commit a felony, which is great. But when it comes to our relationships with each other, um, when it comes to sex, when it comes to, honestly, how we walk through the world, I think, I believe that we should have a higher standard for ourselves than I didn't actually commit a felony. When we think about the relationships that we want to have, when we think about 
the sex that we want to have. And perhaps, as I said before, sex is a stand-in for how we engage with the world in some ways. I think that it is appropriate and would be good for us to have a way of thinking about not just what won't I get in trouble for, but also what would be good, what contributes to the common good, what contributes to my good, and more importantly, perhaps, what contributes to the good of the other person. This is, I propose an ethic of mutuality and care, not just what we can get away with. But how, how do we get there without religion or without tradition? I, so this, I, I come back to this because you're talking about drawing the line and making ethical judgments about what's better than something else, but without any kind of ultimate source of good, it's it's going to be arbitrary, dependent on human whims and desires according to time and place. So. The Army Hammer example is actually pretty clear. I think most people would agree that like his crazy fantasies were beyond the pale. But then if we go to things that are less obvious, where do we draw the line if we're just operating in a completely secular framework? Mm -hmm. It seems to me that we still need to have recourse to um, traditions that that tell us these things or that inform but see, I don't have to smuggle religion into this. No, Shadi but Shadi'll do, Shadi do it. But but let me even complicate it for Shadi. I see. This is why I think our earlier episode discussing manners is so important, right? And 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 I think manners grounds something in a tradition and mm -hmm. societal expectations that doesn't necessarily require revealed truth. So that was part one of our conversation. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. There's still much more to come, though. Another 70 minutes of conversation with Christine Emba, where we go into some truly uncharted territory. Part two is for subscribers only. You can subscribe by going to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. A link is also included in the show notes. You'll get access to all our paid content on the site, including weekly bonus episodes, Q&A features, and our full essay archive. We'd love to have you as part of our growing community, only at Wisdom of Crowds. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Thanks so much for listening.